G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. We're turning our attention today to one of the simmering tension points just to our north and discussion around the way that groups can be easily labelled as terrorist to justify human rights abuses. We're going to be talking about our Uh, You might even say brothers and sisters in West Papua today. You know, we're often quick to label militant Islamist groups as terrorists. But what happens when Islamist groups label Christian minorities as terrorists? Well, the people of West Papua are coming under increasing pressure from strengthening forces from Indonesia. On Sunday, the 25th of April, while we were commemorating Anzac Day, a small detachment of Indonesian security personnel was patrolling a crime scene in Punkak Regency in the central highlands of Papua province when it was ambushed by Papuan rebels. A firefight ensued and the Indonesian Armed Forces Provincial Intelligence Chief was shot dead. On the face of it, it appears to have been a planned assassination. And so, the Indonesian president, Joko Widodo, immediately called for retaliation. And on Thursday, the 29th of April, police claimed to have killed nine Papuan fighters in retaliation for the shooting. However, the spokesman for the rebel group, Sebi Sambom, denied the claim, calling it a big lie and propaganda designed to boost the Indonesian military's morale. Well, we're going to be talking around this issue and in some sense today telling the story, but there'll be some deeper things that'll come out in the story. Our special guest is Elizabeth Kendall, international religious liberty analyst and advocate. She serves as director of advocacy at the Canberra-based Christian Faith and Freedom and is an adjunct research fellow at the Arthur Jeffrey Centre for the Study of Islam at Melbourne School of Theology. Elizabeth Kendall, always a pleasure, but a special welcome back to 2020. Thank you for having me, Neil. Elizabeth, I'm telling this story this morning, and we're going to enlarge on some of these things, but I wonder whether we might start with a little bit of a context here, and uh, for people who are often familiar with hearing about Papua New Guinea, every Aussie knows where Papua New Guinea is, well, of course, just to the west of Papua New Guinea, and there's like a border that's drawn halfway down that that land above us, uh, that's where West Papua is. And those West Papuans are described as dark-skinned, curly-haired people, and they're a Christian people. Uh, what are your thoughts for getting a context here as to how our conversation might evolve today? Well, quite a few people who are listening to this show may well have read the very, very famous mission book, Peace Child which was written by the Canadian uh, pioneer missionary Don Richardson. Uh, He was in uh, the west part of New Guinea, right, West New Guinea, uh, back in, I think, the 1950s and 1960s. 
and he was a pioneer missionary there. Uh, he was Canadian. The Missionary Aviation Fellowship USA was the main uh, vehicle by which uh, pioneering missionaries were coming to West, uh, West Papua, as it's often known. And um, this missionary, Don Richardson, had this amazing experience with these people. Now, the, the Papuans, they're all separated tribe by tribe in this incredibly mountainous terrain. So you, it's very difficult to traverse this terrain. And they, often tribes were constantly at war with each other. And he really wondered how on earth he was going to have any sort of breakthrough with them. They were cannibalistic. Uh, Australia has its own martyr, who, um, who uh, Stan Dale, who was a martyr in the area. Um, that it was this just dangerous pioneer mission. Uh, often, you know, in our lifetime, um, it was amazing. And he just really didn't know how to break through. Anyway, after many years of learning the language and sharing the gospel with them, he was telling the story of Judas betraying Jesus, and the and and the Papuans started giggling. And he realized that they thought Judas was really clever, that he could do something so treacherous and get away with it. And he thought, I'm never going to have a breakthrough with these people. Anyway, then two tribes in the area went to war. And they decided that rather than fight, they didn't want to fight there, but someone had had a baby. And they had this tradition that I, in order to break, to broker peace, they would hand over the baby to the other tribe because that means that we will never attack you because one of our own is here. And that child was called the peace child. So they could broker peace through the handing over of the child. And he tells the story of the, the trauma that was involved uh, in the giving over of the child. But he realizes immediately when he sees it, here is the breakthrough. And he sits down with the, with the people in his tribe later on and he says that God was at war with human beings. Uh, you know, humanity rebelled and God sent his son, the son of God. Jesus Christ is God's peace child. And they all got it. And you see literally like awakening and revival just moves through the tribes of Irian Dryer. It's one of the great missionary stories and turnings. There's a beautiful article uh, which was in the Sydney Morning Herald in 2015 where Michael Bachelard points out that these people are overwhelmingly Christian. They, they sing, they are at peace, and only like a generation or two ago, they were headhunters all killing each other. He, he said it's just amazing. So we're looking at a people who in our lifetime – if you're, if you're uh, not too young, in our lifetime have gone from being uh, nations and tribes of cannibals and warring headhunters to overwhelmingly Christian. But during the same time, they were taken over by Indonesia. They are now occupied by, by Indonesian Javanese Muslim troops. And we could see the Papuans go from Christianity to genocide in the space of a century. That's what we're looking at. And I, I wrote a prayer bulletin called How Will the Story End? Uh, this great missionary story that's so regularly talked about. How is it going to end? Wow. From headhunters to Christian and now occupied by Indonesia and uh, the Indonesian occupiers, Javanese 
Islamists. And uh, let me just reflect too as we get in context on how this story unfolds today, Elizabeth. Uh, There's reason for the Indonesians uh, wanting to take more and more uh, ground in West Papua because of the resources and uh, we had a conversation about this some time back but uh, how do you see the the uh, the resource issue as being a part of this as well well the resource issue is is everything it's, it's the situation is is very similar to the situation in Burma or Myanmar where you have a centralized government wants the resources that's under the feet of the nations that live around the periphery who happen to be Christians, the Chin and the Kachin especially, are sitting on, well, the Kachin are on very resource-rich land. Likewise, in Sudan, I often think of Burma as the Sudan of Asia, and what's happening in Papua is the same. In Sudan, you had a centralised government that wanted the resources that were under the feet of black African Christians so they just wanted to get rid of them. They just were happy to kill them. They saw them as bugs to be gotten rid of so they could get to the oil and everything underneath. And what you've got in, in Papua here is you've got a very large territory with a very small population compared to, you know, say Java and other Indonesian islands. And it's it's full of resources, everything from timber through to gold and copper. And uh, and the Indonesians, who happen to be Javanese Muslims, just look at them and say, well, they just have to get out of the way. You know, this is our land now. It's been given to us, the Indonesians, and we're going to extract these resources. And you just, you, you bugs, you infidels, uh, it's very racist and it's very... Uh, racial and religious hatred is, is firing, fueling the whole thing. And then there is this this greed for the for the resources under underneath their feet. So it all comes together. And like many militaries, the Indonesian military is quite free to go about uh, setting up business wherever it works. The, the, the you know lots of militaries do this you know in, outside of the West. So the Indonesian military, the TNI, is deeply invested in uh, in Papua. Uh, in protection rackets, in business dealings, in trafficking, everything, in illegal logging, you name it. They make so much money here that the Indonesian military is not going to want to ever leave. And, of course, the Indonesian government makes so much money in Papua. They don't want uh, any of their rights uh, reduced. And the victims in all this are the indigenous people, the, the Papuans, who are ethnically different and they're Christians. So, Elizabeth, more context here, because we've got those Christian West Papuans, but there are also some who are involved in, uh, you know, the sort of the freedom fighters on the side. And coming back to, as I uh, alluded to in the uh, in the introduction, where there was a firefight and the Indonesian Armed Forces Provincial Intelligence Chief was shot dead in what appeared to be an assassination. So uh, when we've, we're talking about the uh, the ordinary Christian West Papuans and also these other uh, 
freedom fighters on the side, uh, they're different groups themselves? Well, probably a little bit, you know, mixed up. I'm, I, I, I could not tell you if yep. there were if there were no Christians carrying guns or anything like that. We really couldn't say, or I, I certainly couldn't say, but this is an insurgency that's been going on, you know, for 50, 60, 70 years. Um, it, it's a long, grinding insurgency. And, you know, the, the Papuan people, um, you, have, you, you have real pro-democracy workers who are trying to raise awareness of the democracy, pro, of the human rights situation. You have lawyers, pro-democracy lawyers trying to do that. You have a, a lots of uh, priests, Christian pastors trying to raise awareness and you have armed gangs trying to defend their own territory from Indonesian troops. You also have armed gangs that have said, we're so sick of this, we're going to go out and kill Indonesian soldiers. So, you know, it's a broad... Uh, broad scene, but what had happened? What's ha- what had happened uh, to trigger all this now was there's one as a particular group uh, behind, under a particular Papuan. Uh, he's a criminal, and they're killing people, um, and they've got weapons, and they have been wreaking a bit of havoc, havoc up in the highlands. And it looks like it was a targeted assassination. They knew that the uh, the head of military intelligence was going to be there. And they got in place and he was assassinated. But the thing is, you see, to, to, for, for the government to go out and call these people terrorists is ridiculous. Um, they're not terrorists. <laughs> they're actually quite primitive people, a lot of them, who live in the jungle and trying to protect their culture and their people for most of the time with bows and arrows. The Indonesian military has estimated itself that there are a grand total of 200 weapons. 200 weapons, that's all. And this is what this needs is a police action. The police need to hunt down the killers and charge them with, you know, and, and charge them with an offence, be you know, illegal firearms. Um, uh, you know, murder and all that sort of stuff, but to send in battalions of troops to literally flood the highlands with terror. This, I agree with Benny Wender, the Papuan uh, independence leader who's now lives in exile in, in London. I agree with him. This is state terror, state terrorism. This has got nothing to do with trying to put down an insurgency. The whole purpose behind what's happening now is to terrorise everybody, including Benny Wender in London, so that calls for independence, a new referendum, are just silenced. No one will dare open their mouths after this. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Our special guest this hour is Elizabeth Kendall, international religious liberty analyst and advocate. We are talking about West Papua, just to our north, and the military might that is being used by Indonesia against some Christian West Papuans uh, who really have as their weapons uh, bows and arrows. Um, this is we're not hearing a lot about this, Elizabeth. What are your thoughts for the fact that perhaps our Australian media isn't giving as much coverage to this as they might do? Yes, I actually I think that's disgraceful, really disgraceful. Um, 
I mean, there are reasons why there's no news coming out. I don't have any news for you. I don't. I can't update it for you because Indonesia has uh, put down the mobile phone services throughout the region in in Jaipura and in Pungkok and the Central Highlands. They've shut down the internet services. They did this uh, a couple of years ago when they were, when they did a massive. Um, a massive military operation in uh, Wamera and other areas. So they've done the same thing. They've essentially put made Papua dark. But to me, that's not good enough for our media to just not report on it. You know, the ABC and SBS should be harping on uh, Indonesia. Um, Indonesia's not dark, and I'm sure they can get to talk to some uh, some Indonesian uh, officials. They should be looking for a comment from Joko Widodo. They should be looking for comments from the Indonesian military. I think it's outrageous. And, you know, I think there's a lot of Australians who actually have, uh, you know, they, they know the degree to which the ethnic Melanesian people of, of uh, the, you know, the island of, uh, of Papua, the, the whole island of New Guinea, that these people have been our allies in the war, um, they served our soldiers in PNG. Um, a lot of Australians actually care very, very deeply what happens to the West Poplands. And uh, I think it's, it's just a complete, um, I don't know, de- uh, uh, you know dereliction, dereliction of duty to not, for the mainstream media not to be chasing this up as fast as they can go. Wow. We're taking calls on 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call. Uh, let's hear from Greg in Queensland. Hi, Greg. Welcome along. Oh, good. Thank you for allowing me to have a chat. Greg, what are your thoughts or do you have a question? Well, my thoughts are I've, um, I've actually worked in Papua New Guinea for five years during the early to late 80s. And... Um, I was aware of what was happening over the year in Jara border because some of the boys would come to me and ask if they could do some overtime so they could get some money together and go over the year in Jara border and start um, killing Indonesians. Huh. I said, well, what do you want to do that for? He said, well, my villages are over there that we've been there for hundreds of years. have been pushed, slaughtered, pushed away so the Indonesians can grow crops there some of the fertile regions around the Yurinjara border, and they um, they just wanted to get it over and done with. Uh, Greg, great insight there. Uh, Elizabeth, what are your thoughts for Greg? Yes, well, that's what I was sort of saying before. You've got people who are just so tired of it, and they're so tired of being left to their own defences with no support from what we would call the international community. From, uh, from Australia and America and England, the countries that basically handed them to Indonesia in the first place, nobody wants to know about it. Nobody wants to talk about it. So they've got fed up. They want to buy weapons and they want to defend their own properties. They want to defend their farms. And uh, the trouble is it's like an ant trying to fight an elephant. You know, it's just, it's just about it. It's impossible. You know, they're... They're fighting the Indonesian military here. Then it's not even just like Indonesian settlers or something. It's so it's 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 catastrophic. And um, you know, one of the one of the battalions that has been sent in in this recent uh, wave ha- is nicknamed Satan's Forces, and it got its nickname 
uh, fighting in East Timor. So it's, uh, here it is. In- Infantry 315 Garuda Battalion, 400 strong, and it's nicknamed pa- uh, Satan's Forces. Uh, from its, it got that from its brutal methods in East Timor. So they're very, very good at killing uh, non-Javanese infidels. And um, I, this is just a horrendous thing. And you know, people have, it's unsurprising that people have decide, decided that they will get weapons, they will arm themselves, and they will try and defend their lands and their people. And that's what happens when the state doesn't protect them. They start looking to protect themselves. Greg in Queensland, thank you so much for your call. A great insight to be able to offer there. Let's take another call, not too far out from news. Bob is in Lithgow in New South Wales. Hello, Bob. Welcome. Hello. Hi. Hi, Bob. What um, are your thoughts? Well, my thoughts uh, are unusual because I've been, I put a lot of thought into this. And what I discovered is we are living in a bad world because illegal, because we weren't supposed to be legal. Um, See, the sun doesn't come up for a legal reason. The sun comes up for a righteous reason. So therefore, we should be living in a righteous universe, not a legal universe. And and these people who make this, this product, we call it money, but it's actually called legal tender. And they're, therefore, they're trying to say, you have to live on this planet with our legal tender. You can't live without our product. And that's the whole problem because, and, and what I've done is, I've, I've looked at, our, at our, um, our alphabet in the English language. There's 26 letters in the alphabet. And what I've done is, I've, 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 uh, I call it word science. And what I've done is... is Bob, you're introducing uh, some interesting uh, elements here and uh, some of it philosophical. And uh, Elizabeth, we're coming up to news. I've just got to cut uh, Bob short there. A quick quick response? Well, so much of this is all driven by greed. So, you know, that's pretty much what he's getting at. I think so much is driven by greed. The government's desire to pull out the resources and just to get rid of whoever is in the way and everyone else is turning a blind eye to it. Right. Thank you so much for your call, Bob. Elizabeth, uh, a number of calls to take, and perhaps before we move on, we might take uh, a call or two. Let's first of all hear from Sarah, who is in Queensland. Hello, Sarah. Welcome along. Hello, Neil. Look, thank you so, so much for bringing this story to light. Thank you so much. I would just urge my Christian brothers and sisters to pray for the dear nation, West Papua. Elizabeth, I knew a beautiful black man some years ago when I was living in Redcliffe. He was diplomat to the United Nations for his country. From my understanding, the Dutch people settled his area and his nation and... um, at some stage, uh, the late 60s or early 70s, they w- were pulling out and just wanted to give independence to the West Papuans. And I believe the United Nations requested Indonesia to be a friend country and to help out because they were in the area. However, they moved in and took over. My dear, dear friend um, fought very hard for the independence of his people and for the United Nations to intervene. 
However, every time it seemed that something good would happen, it didn't. I wonder if you can shed any light on this. Elizabeth, thoughts for Sarah? Yes, thank you for calling in, Sarah, and thank you for bringing us uh, back to this. I'll tell you how it happened. It was a slightly, di- slightly different to what you said, very similar, but some really disturbing elements that I can add in here. So Indonesia, the Eastern Indonesia was under the Dutch, right, under the Dutch colonial uh, power. Indonesia gets independence in 1945. And in 1962, they have a... Uh, a a, uh, they call it uh, the act of no choice. The act of free choice is what it's called. Papuans joke about it as the act of no choice. So what the Indonesians did, the Indonesians wanted West Papua or Irian Jaya. They wanted, they wanted that land because they knew that there was going to be copper and gold and other things there. So they, they set up this uh, referendum system um, whereby they handpicked a bit over a thousand people, told them how to vote, and of course they got, I think, a hundred percent vote in favour of becoming part of Indonesia. But it really was not a free and fair referendum by any stretch uh, of the imagination. Now the Dutch, the Dutch had done amazing work in West Papua. They had built schools. They had. They had their missionaries there. They were working amongst the people. They built medical clinics. And they were strongly opposed to West Papua becoming part of Indonesia. And they said to the United Nations, no, don't do it. <laughs> the uh, the Melanesian Christ- Melanesians are completely different people to the Javanese Muslims. It will be catastrophic. Don't let it happen. So the Dutch and the Dutchers stayed very strongly of that that position. They're probably one of West Papua's uh, leading advocates for a new referendum, and uh, I've got a lot of respect for the Dutch. They've really stayed firm there. But what happened was that, uh, particularly specifically, America and England, they wanted to keep Indonesia out of the Soviet sphere of influence. So this is the time of the Cold War. And Indonesia, you know, could just have slipped into the Soviet sphere of influence. And so in order to make sure that didn't happen, America and Australia and the UK uh, basically pressured the United Nations to to allow this referendum uh, and the New York Agreement, everything that happened in 1962, so that Indonesia could get what it wanted. And by getting what, by giving Indonesia what it wanted, it kept Indonesia in the Western sphere of influence. I mean, I mean, today it's slipping into the Chinese sphere of influence, but that's why it was done. So basically, the West, the, the very countries that had missionaries there and who knew, what the, who knew that the people were so different and had heard from the Dutch about the, the prospect that this could be catastrophic, literally uh, threw the Papuans under the bus. They betrayed them. Uh, and then they abandoned them. So they handed them to the Indonesians. And part of this is just uh, a naive, total naivety in the West to think that, oh, it doesn't matter that, they're, that the Indonesians are Muslims, they'll all live happily ever after. But it was never going to be that way. Um, the, the violence that has been inflicted on the Papuans is it's driven by greed, 
that it's fueled by racial and religious hatred. And the Dutch were right. And what the West has done is shameful. And the West needs to now step up. It needs to stand by the Papuans and call for a, a new referendum, I believe, and for decolonization. Well, Sarah in Queensland, thank you so much for uh, your great insight there. And our talkback line remains open, 1-800-316-316. If you'd like to join in this conversation, let's take another call. Jason is in Melbourne. Hi, Jason. Welcome. Good afternoon. I mean, good morning. Um, good morning, um, Neil and your guest. I'd like to say that um, we need to pray for mass salvations in Indonesia. I urge our Christian brothers and sisters to pray for mass salvations. And even though the Indonesian uh, Islamic, we need to pray for every Indonesian who is not Islamic, which are very few, to come to know Jesus and even those who are persecuting the Christians in Indonesia, in West Papua, to come to Jesus because Indonesia needs Jesus because Jesus can only save. As Jimmy Swaggart would say, as Jimmy Swaggart, the American vessel, would say, Jesus is the only one who saves Islam can't. Nothing else can but Jesus can. Jason, good insight there. Your thoughts for Jason, Elizabeth? Oh, well, absolutely. Thank you very much for, for that, Jason. Um, you know, and I, there is actually a lot of evidence that Muslims are coming to faith in Indonesia uh, at, at unprecedented levels. Um, now, Islamic groups uh, usually, uh, you know, get into the whole scaremongering thing. Oh, Indonesia will become Christian. Well, it's a, it's a long way off that, <laughs> but they use that as a as their grounds for trying to crack down on Christian groups. And at the local level, they use that sort of threat. Oh, if we don't crack down on the Christians, they'll, you know, then we're going to have Christians everywhere. But they, the fact is Muslims are coming to faith in Jesus Christ in Indonesia. And this is something that God is doing, and we must be praying for it. Uh, get on board with the 30-day Muslim prayer focus when it comes around next year. Pray for Indonesia. And pray too for the Indonesian church that its eyes will be really opened to what is happening in West Papua because the Indonesian church, you know, it's not, it's not totally tiny. It's not 1% and poor. It's closer to 10% with quite a, quite a lot of entrepreneurs and clever business people, especially amongst the Chinese Indonesians. And the church in Indonesia could do, I believe, a, a whole lot more for the, for the Papuans. They can speak out more about racism. They can uh, do a lot more lobbying. They can do more mission work. There's already some Indonesian uh, churches doing some really incredible uh, mission work. And in my in my posting that I wrote, um, the one that I just posted recently called um, This is What State Terror Looks Like, I actually have a link to one of them. Um, a really amazing Indonesian missionary who is working to build Christian schools in Papua so that the children can be raised with Christian education and he, he gets sponsorship for the children. And this is, so the Indonesian church, I think, really needs our prayers because they are the ones that have the ability 
to actually make difference where we can't because we're so locked out of the situation. Wonderful. Great to hear from you, Jason. Thanks so much for your call. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. Elizabeth, let's talk about this word terrorist for a few moments because when you have one side designating the other side as terrorist and uh, perhaps it's easy to use that word uh, becomes then an excuse to be able to influence and exert power and uh, I wonder whether you've got any thoughts around this idea of that designation that's been given uh, against uh, these uh, what we're calling even rebels but these are the Christian Papuans. Yes, well, and so... so on the 29th of April, uh, the head of uh, legal affairs of the Indonesian military uh, announced that from now on, um, the KKB, that is the armed criminal groups in West Papua, would be classified as terrorists in line with counter-terrorism law 8 2018. Now, what this means is that instead of treating them like criminals, right, like men who have picked up guns and gone out and shot someone and need the police to come after them, they can be treated as terrorists. And the whole issue is treated not as a police matter, but as a counter-terror operation. And the counter-terrorism law also means that all the security forces get extra powers. So it's not even just that they have their normal military powers. They now have more power They can have a disproportionate surveillance. They can detain suspects for longer periods without even charging them. And, of course, that runs the risk that the suspects will be abused, that they will be tortured. And we know that there is a history of West Papuans being tortured and even killed in detention. So the governor of of Papua, he immediately came out against it and and pleaded that, that Indonesia... Not not use that word because that that would just just change the whole dynamic. But also, Human Rights Watch, in fact, a whole list of human rights organisations and and human rights lawyers came out against it immediately. And uh, Human Rights Watch had a had a very strong uh, very strong statement. They said, you know, that this will trigger racist violence against Papuans outside Papua. So Papuans who are studying in university in Indonesia could be suddenly labelled terrorists by other students and beaten up on the campus. You know, it will just fuel the racism and it will also be used to justify gross human rights abuses and arbitrary arrests and torture and killing and, and everything. So uh, Human Rights Watch has, has also appealed for the government to, to change its mind on this, but, but they haven't and they're not going to, I don't think. They have, a, they have an agenda and the agenda is to... Literally, uh, I, I believe the agenda is to silence all dissent so that even Papuans who are outside of the country, uh, when they see what, what's happened to their people, they will be too scared to say anything. I think that's the, this is state terror. I really believe this is state terror. And as you mentioned earlier, when you have a blackout on the use of internet, it means no information is getting out and it's a, a smokescreen there for activity that's going on uh, undetected. Hey, Elizabeth, when we talk about Australians and what we might see as our 
position here in this region and as we look to our neighbours in the north, uh, this connection that we have as Aussies, and you mentioned a little earlier too, that there's an Aussie martyr uh, whose name was Stan Dale, uh, who was a missionary in West Papua. And of course, uh, you know, we're talking about a Christian people moving from being headhunters to being Christians. And and uh, of course, there's lots of missionaries that came from around the world, but Aussies are Aussies have got a stake here as well in in having brought the gospel to West Papua. Uh, give us your insights here into into how that all might connect us more deeply as Aussies to the plight of West Papuans right now. Well, I think it does, and I, you know, and certainly for the church. Now, you know, we're living almost in a like in a post-Christian uh, society now, so the wider society doesn't care. They probably even think that. Missionaries shouldn't have bothered going there in the first place, but even though they've brought peace to a land that was const- where people were constantly killing each other, and they've brought literacy, and they've brought health care, there's still a very negative attitude in society. But churches, the churches, Australian churches, should see that the, the Christians of West Papua and the Papuan Highlands are the legacy of our missionaries, and I, I, I firmly believe, I feel it in my heart that there's this tie between us and them. You know, we're tied. We have our, our, our missionary died there. There's a beautiful article, I think I, I mentioned it before, by a Michael Bachelard in, in 2015. And he writes, he visits the area and he writes, the people of Lolat in the high mountains of Papua. So this is the same area that's under attack today. Their first experience of a white man was in 1968, and it was a culinary one, he says, when Australian missionary Stanley Dale hiked over the ridge to the nearby Seng Valley. His would-be flock took him for a demon. They chased him and his partner, an American missionary, Philip Masters, and they killed them with bows and arrows and ate them. Now every soul in these villages is Christian, and they see Dale as their martyr, and they say the gospel has spread from where his blood fell. I mean, it's just an incredible story. And, and as I said before, everyone loves these stories. You know, the brave missionary, the brave martyr. But who cares about what happens next? All these people. Well, the church in Australia has to care. These are like the children of our missionary, Stanley Dale, and... I think we have to, I think it's one of those cases I think we have to especially take on board. And they are our next door neighbours, for goodness sake. You know, like, to me, this should be a a real priority for the church in Australia. When we've got the gospel bringing peace between warring tribes, and of course that a miraculous process when that happens, but now this influence from Islamists coming from the outside steamrolling over the good work that's been done and threatening to bring what is no longer going to be a peaceful situation but warlike conditions. Mm. What are your thoughts here? And, uh, you know, as, as I mentioned when I introduce you, uh, that you are uh, involved with uh, research, uh, adjunct research fellow at Arthur Jeffrey Centre for the Study of Islam at Melbourne School of Theology. You've got Islamists muscling in where there are Christians or infidels 
How does this not mix and uh, this is not likely to be a uh, a peaceful resolution here? What are your thoughts for the fact that it is Islam v. Christians? Well, it's not primarily a religious conflict. So that's definitely true. But the fact is religion influences the way the conflict plays out. So the whole situation is inflamed by the fact that there is intense, racial and religious hatred. So, and, and the fact is that in, in the Islamic worldview, the, inf- the infidels, the infidels are to be killed. You know, kill the infidels wherever you find them. That's straight out of the Quran. And, you know, it, it, they're supposed to convert to Islam or die uh, or surrender and submit and die. And uh, if, they're, if they're going to fight for their rights, then, then they just have to go. So, the, so this fits into the whole Islamic worldview, and is, Indonesia has been becoming more and more Islamized and more and more radical over the decades. You know, I've got friends who say they they never saw you know hijabs in in Jakarta, you know, say until about the 1990s. So it all starts in the 1980s with Saudi Arabia pumping in the Wahhabi uh, ideology, and then. And then you get jihadis coming back from Afghanistan in the 1990s, and it just goes from there. And mosques have increasingly become more and more radical. There's more, more Saudi Arabian, um, more Saudi Arabian Islam amongst the local Muslims, and and more in, the Indonesian Muslims have over decades, recent decades, become more intolerant and less. I would say probably less caring about what happens to infidels over in West Papua. So all that plays into it, all that plays into it. And it means that, you know, when you've got the Indonesian military that has so much at stake in the land in terms of its economic interests, uh, these are soldiers who have an Islamic worldview. So they barely even look at the Papuans as human beings. And that's what makes the situation so absolutely diabolical. And Elizabeth, that's why genocide is a real possibility. It's a real possibility. Uh, an important part of our conversation, because time is running out very quickly, uh, we might be thinking, how do we respond? Uh, listeners to our conversation today, uh, what are your thoughts for what move we might make to do something practical from wherever we are listening around Australia right now? Well, the very reason why Indonesia has shut down the mobile phone communications and the internet is to keep it dark because all sorts of terrible things can happen in the dark. So what we have to do as Christians is speak. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves and defend the rights of the poor and needy. We have to speak. We have to speak to, you know, ring up ABC Radio if they're having a discussion on Indonesia or Papua or security or anything. Ring up and speak. Uh, write to your local member. I'm a big fan of the idea of writing to your local member and let your local member know that you are deeply concerned about what's happening in West Papua today or, or in the highlands of Papua today. Write to the foreign minister, but I like writing to the local member. And get your church to pray. Get your church to understand that people who are our brothers and sisters, the legacy of our Australian missionaries, 
are being slaughtered in the dark. So we have to speak and we have to pray. And, you know, it's great too if we can find a way to give financially too to help the people of West Papua. Well, Elizabeth Kendall, you do an outstanding job being able to bring to light some of these things that are happening and uh, certainly an inspiration for every listener, no doubt, to uh, look to do something to make a difference. Uh, And even, uh, of course, you know, we oftentimes talk about what Christians do. We spend time in prayer uh, for those sorts of situations. And there are some other practical things that can come out of that prayer time and our standing in solidarity with brothers and sisters in Christ, we, even where there is a Australian connection, an Australian investment in the Christianity of those West Papuans. But to read the, the whole story, uh, the sorts of things we've been talking about today as we've been unpacking a lot of different dimensions you can find this story when you go online at elizabethkendall.com. Elizabeth's uh, website there, you'll find where there is a, under the Religious Liberty Monitoring, uh, you'll be able to find a link that tells this story that we've been talking about today in case you missed some of the finer points and it's easy to do in a long conversation like this. So I encourage you to visit elizabethkendall.com and, uh, of course, there is a way that you can be led in some prayer for some of the situations we talk about when we do have Elizabeth as our guest. So elizabethkendall.com. Let me just mention uh, Elizabeth's uh, two books, Turn Back the Battle, Isaiah Speaks to Christians Today, offering a biblical response to persecution and existential threat. And her other book, After Saturday Comes Sunday, Understanding the Christian Crisis in the Middle East. Uh, You'll be able to access those books wherever you get good Christian books and also through Elizabeth's site at elizabethkendall.com. Elizabeth, thanks so much for sharing your heart with us once again today on 2020. Thanks for having me, Neil. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.